Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Just a brief note to say that my last podcast on RFK Jr. has been um, jailbroken, which is to say the audio that's now on the free feed is the same as the subscriber audio. There's no longer a paywall. This came in response to some heartfelt appeals that we make that a public service announcement, which we've now done. So feel free to forward that to your friends or anyone who you think should hear it. There have also been several articles that have come out in recent days about RFK that entirely support the points I make there. So uh, nothing to retract or amend as far as I know. Okay. Today I'm speaking with Nina Schick. Nina has been on the podcast before. Nina is an author and public speaker who wrote the book Deep Fakes. She is an expert on current trends in generative AI. She advises several technology companies and frequently speaks at conferences. She has spoken at the UN and to DARPA and many other organizations. And in addition to generative AI, she's focused on geopolitical risk and the larger problem of state-sponsored disinformation. And today we speak about the challenge of regulating AI, authentication versus the detection of fakes, the problem of fake video in particular, the coming hyper-personalization of information, the good side of AI, productivity gains, etc. We talk about possible disruptions in the labor market, open AI as a company, and other topics. Once again, it was a pleasure to speak to Nina, unfortunately in only one of the seven languages she speaks, but for better or worse, English is where I live. And now I bring you Nina Schick. I am here with Nina Schick. Nina, thanks for joining me again. It's great to be back, Sam. So you, you were on, I forget when you were on. It was, it's uh, a couple of years now. When do you have the, the year in, in memory? Yeah, it was in 2020. So um, just before kind of the new wave of what we're seeing really started to emerge. So yeah, so you, you, wrote, you came on to talk about your book, Deep Fakes, which was um, all too prescient of our current concerns. But in the meantime, we have this new phenomenon of generative AI, which has only made the problem of deep fakes more profound, I would imagine. And I think that'll be the, the main topic of today's conversation. But before we jump in, can you just remind people what you've been doing these many years? What, what, what have been your areas of yeah. focus and, and what's your background? Sure, absolutely. So I'm half Nepalese and I'm half German. I actually grew up in Kathmandu, but eventually I came to live in the UK. So I'm based in London right now. And I was always really interested in politics and geopolitics. So really for the kind of first two decades of my career, I was working in geopolitics and it just so happened at the end of the 2000s and throughout the 2010s, I happened to work on a lot of kind of seismic events, if you will, from the original annexation of Crimea by Russia to kind of how the ground was laid for Brexit here in the UK to kind of, I don't know if you remember, but the kind of migration crisis in Europe in mm. 2015, which in large yeah. part was triggered by um, the indiscriminate bombing of civilians in Syria by President Putin, basically the weaponization of migration, which then consequently kind of led to was one of the main reasons that Brexit happened as well. And the kind of persistent feature in my geopolitical career was that 
technology was emerging as this macro geopolitical force and that it wasn't just shaping geopolitics on a very lofty and high level, but that it was also shaping the individual experience of almost every single person alive. And I saw that again also on the ground, so to speak, in Nepal, where you know technology and the internet and smartphones have changed society immeasurably in the past few decades. So I just increasingly started becoming interested in technology as this kind of shaping force for society. And because I had been working on information warfare, disinformation, actual wars, and information integrity, in 2017, I was advising the former NATO Secretary General on emerging technology threats. And he was working in the context of um, a group of global leaders, which actually included, uh, at the time, the former VP, Joe Biden, because they're kind of concerned about the 2020 election in the US, given what had happened in 2016. And it was whilst I was working for this kind of group, which were, you know, in part, we were looking at disinformation, but they were also trying to forge and strengthen the transatlantic alliance in the view that only if Europe and the United States are united, can they kind of stand up against the authoritarian forces of Putin and in China, et cetera, et cetera. But that's when I first saw emerging this so-called phenomenon of deepfakes, right? It started emerging at the end of 2017. And I immediately sensed that this was something that would be really, really important because it was the first time we're seeing AI create new data, right? And the first use case, so malicious, was in non-consensual pornography, right? It's mm. soon as it became possible. So as soon as these kind of research advances started leaching out of the AI research community and enthusiasts started using them on the internet, the first thing they started to do was to generate content, i.e. deepfakes, in the form of non-consensual pornography. And I immediately sensed, though, that this wasn't just kind of just a tawdry women's issue, even though this was undeniably, in this instance, something that was targeted against women but almost a civil liberties issue, because if you can now clone anybody with the right training data and basically use AI to kind of recreate their biometrics, and this is potentially going to be a huge problem. So that was kind of the seed. That's what led me to write my book on deep fakes and information integrity and the inundation of synthetic content and what that would do in an already very corrupt and corroded information ecosystem. But Really, what my reflection is now is, you know, that was just really my starting point into the world of AI and generative AI, because from that point mm -hmm. on, when I wrote the book, I kind of stopped working with the global leaders and on the policy side of things, because I was just so fascinated in what was happening in this kind of new developments in AI that I've just been concentrating on that. And although the starting point was mis and disinformation over the past few years, my reflection has been that it is so much more than that, you know, mm. mis and disinformation is one very important part of the story. But if you think about generative AI as what is becoming clear now, and again, we're only at the very beginning of the journey, I think it's really more profound than that. I think it's almost a tipping point for human society. Mm. Well, you have waved your hands in the direction of many emerging problems here and over and against all of those. There's the um, the question of what to do about it, and you know, regulation is one of the first words that comes to mind. And yet, regulation—speaking from 
a U.S. point of view. Maybe the same is true in the U.K. now politically, but in the U.S., your regulation is a bad word for at least half of the society, and especially in this area, it seems to be in zero-sum collision with free speech, right? So there are many people who are, you know, center, right of center, who are especially focused on this issue. There's there's a kind of silencing of dissent. There's an effort on the part of big tech and big corporations generally, the pharmaceutical industry and the you know, within you know, messaging into the public health calamity of COVID, uh, the government adjacent to all of that. There, there are these elite interests that seem to want to get everyone to converge, inevitably prematurely on certain canonical facts. Uh, many of which it is feared turn out not to be facts. They turn out to be you know politically correct dogmas, taboos, you know, various mind viruses that. We don't want to get anchored to, you know. It is argued, and I'm certainly sympathetic with some of that. But like you, I've grown increasingly worried about disinformation, misinformation, information integrity generally. So I'm just wondering what you think about the tension there, because we're going to talk about the problem in detail now, and some part of a response to it is going to include some form of regulation. Many people at this point, it seems to me, just don't want to even be party to that conversation. The moment you begin going down that path, all of the conspiratorial red flags get you know, waved or, or imagined, and half the audience thinks that the World Economic Forum and specific malefactors, you know, puppeteers pulling the strings of society will be in control, or, or at least will be struggling to maintain control of our collective mind. So what do you, what do you think about the tensions and, and trade-offs there? Yeah, I mean, I think you've just really hit the nail on the head there when you talk about how difficult, what a kind of quagmire this is. And it's difficult for many reasons. Firstly, because when you talk about regulating AI, you know, it's so vast. Uh, it's just like talking about regulating society or regulating the economy. So we kind of have to break it down into component parts that are easier, I guess, to conceptualize and understand. And with generative AI in particular, because it's so nascent, I mean, I've been following it almost from kind of day one in terms of the research breakthroughs, which really started emerging in 2014, 2015. But I would say that it's really only in the last 12 months that the capability of some of these foundational models, right, and what they can do for data generation in all digital digital medium, whether it's text, video, audio, every kind of form of information and the implications that has on the kind of future of human creative and intelligent work. I mean, it's so profound that I've really come to see the other side in the sense that it's no longer only about disinformation, but this is also potentially a tremendous economic value add. This is potentially also a huge area for scientific research and insight generation. And you're already starting to see some very interesting use cases emerging in enterprise and in research. So I'm sure we'll get into that later. So when you talk about regulating it, I do have some sympathy for this 
if you want to call it the worldview where people are just a little bit sick of politicians, sick of kind of sweeping statements, because already you see the same thing happening with regards to AI, right? Where you have a lot of political leaders who perhaps don't have a background in artificial intelligence, but they understand that this is going to be an important factor. And they kind of are doing a lot of grandstanding, almost saying, well, you know, we're going to build safe AI and we're going to put together a global agency. And without much substance, you can see why people start to get pretty cynical. That being Mm -hmm. said, does this need to be regulated? Absolutely. Because I can't think of a more kind of profound technology, exponential technology that's going to change the entire framework of society. But to start regulating it well, I guess we need to start breaking it down into its constituent parts. And that's so difficult because A, it's still nascent. We don't understand the full capabilities of the technology. And B, because of the exponential acceleration and adoption. I mean, if you consider, I almost conceive of this. I mean, obviously, this is a continuum and it's kind of an exponential curve. But if there was one moment that's completely changed everything, if I had to pinpoint one moment, I would say it is the moment that ChatGPT came out, right? You can almost see the world as pre-ChatGPT and Mm. post-ChatGPT, not because, you know, OpenAI was the first to pioneer large language models. And Jan LeCun, you know, the AI chief at Meta Mm -hmm. kind of famously or infamously came out at the time and was like, it's not that innovative. And he got absolutely panned because whilst, you know, he was correct in the sense that they weren't the first to pioneer large language models, it kind of misses the point because that changed the entire debate in terms of both public perception, but also the market moving. So in the past kind of six months, we've seen all of big tech. Every single big tech company fundamentally and strategically pivot to make generative AI a core part of their strategy. The kind of emerging enterprise use cases are truly astounding. So I think where this is the calm before the storm, or this is probably the last moment, I would say, before we really start seeing AI being integrated into almost every type of human knowledge work. So when you're thinking of the pace and scale of change at this rate, you know, policymakers having worked with many policymakers for many years, they're always kind of on the back foot anyway. But faced with challenges like this, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult, not least because there is a huge skills gap, not only mm-hmm. in the companies that are building the technology, we hear this all the time about the AI skills gap and so on, but also on the regulatory side, who actually understands this? Who actually can foresee what the implications might be? And given, so the only kind of piece of um, transnational regulation that's in the works right now is is coming from the European Union. And this is kind of a gargantuan piece of legislation. It's meant to be the kind of first regulatory blueprint, if you will, on artificial intelligence, been in the works for years. But until ChatGPT came out, it made no reference of generative AI or foundational models. Now, they very quickly redrafted it because they understood that, you know, this is really important, but that's only going to come into force in 2026. So I think one of the consistent reflections, and you must have, I know that you've had this uh, reflection as well, 
if you consider what's been happening over the past few years, is just how quickly all of this has unfolded. Mm -hmm. So all AI researchers I talked to, we all knew or they knew that this was kind of hypothetically within the realm of the possible. But everyone always says, we didn't think we'd be here now. And just trying to keep up with the research papers that are coming out every single day, the new companies, the amount of money flowing into the space, the kind of market-moving impetus started by the tech companies by actually commercializing and productizing these tools and bringing it to market of hundreds of millions of people, you know, yeah, regulators have a mm. hard task on their hands. We could probably class the, the spectrum of problems in, into two bins here. And, and so the deepest, which Perhaps we won't even talk about it unless you, you especially want to touch it. I mean, it's something that, I, that I've spoken about before and will continue to cover on this podcast. But the deepest concern is you know, what often goes by the name of existential risk here. Is, is there something yeah. fundamental about the development of AI that poses a real threat to the, not just the maintenance of democracy and, and the maintenance of civilization, but to the, the further um, career of our species? And, you know, I, I'm convinced that it that there is a, is a problem here worth worrying about and therefore there will be some regulation of a sort that you know we've we've used for you know nuclear proliferation or the spread of the tools of synthetic biology and you know I don't think we've done either of those especially well but here it's even harder and you know that's a separate conversation perhaps then then there are all of the piecemeal near term you know, truly immediate threats of the sort that we've just begun to speak about that go under the you know the banner of of information integrity and you know cyber hacking and you know cyber terrorism and mm -hmm. and just any mal malicious use of narrow ai that can really supercharge in a human conflict and and confusion and this can short of being an existential threat it can be an enormous threat, which um, is certainly worth worrying about. So, but and then obviously there, the, the reason why this is such an interesting conversation is that that's only half of the story. The other half, as you point out, is all of the good things we can expect mm. to do and build and enjoy on the basis of increased intelligence. Generically, intelligence is the best thing we have, right? right. It's the thing that differentiates us from our primate cousins. It's the thing that safeguards everything else we care about, even if you know the, the things we you know we, we care about can't be narrowly reduced to intelligence. Things like love and and friendship and creative joy, etc. All of that is safeguarded from the casual malevolence of nature by intelligence. You know the fact that we can we have a cure we have cures for any illnesses is the result of intelligence. So obviously we want a cure for cancer. We want a cure for Alzheimer's. If AI could give us those two things, the whole experiment would be worth it already, you know, apart from the possibility of our destroying everything else we care about. So let's start where you and I really left off last time with the issue of deep fakes and I guess just fakeness in general. I mean, it wasn't mm -hmm. until the emergence of ChatGPT that I suddenly glimpsed the possibility that in very short order here, most of everything on the internet could be fake, right? I mean, just the, most text could be fake, most image could be fake. I mean, not, you know, not now, but, you know, maybe 
two years from now. I mean, just when you when you look at how quickly you can produce fake faces and fake video and fake journal articles, and that's just an amazing prospect. So tell me how you've been viewing yeah. the, the, the the development of these tools in the last six to twelve months, and what what are the crucial moments with respect to deep fakes and and other fake material that you've you've noticed? Yeah. So. First of all, I think you're absolutely right to conceptualize of the risks broadly in those two buckets, the kind of AGI or existential risk scenario. And I'd like to have a conversation on that with you too. So maybe we can go back to that. But as to the second bucket, which is almost the short and medium term risks, things that are actually materializing right now. And foremost in that bucket, in my mind, is without a doubt information integrity. Now, this is kind of the main thesis of my book, which came out two years ago. And that was, you know, so much has happened since then. At the time, generative AI hadn't even been coined as a phrase. And although people don't usually put chat GPT and deep fakes into the same sentence, they're actually manifestations of the same phenomenon, right? The same kind of new capabilities, new quote unquote, of AI to be able to generate new data. Now, the really interesting thing is that when these capabilities started kind of coming out of the research community at the end of 2017, people started making these non-consensual pornographic creations with them and memes and kind of visual content. So much of the premise of my book was focused on visual media. But of course, at the same time, concurrently, a lot of work was going into the development of large language models. I mean, Google was really pioneering work in large language models in 2017. However, they kept it behind closed doors, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't out there. This is perhaps why nobody was really talking about text. And although we kind of registered, I know you've spoken about GPT series before ChatGPT came out, and we've spoken about large language models, and I knew it was kind of on my radar. It was really only when GPT-3 and GPT-3.5 and now GPT-4 and basically ChatGPT came out that you truly understand the, first of all, the significance of a large language model and what it can do to scale mis and disinformation. I mean, it's truly incredible and how convincing it is. And we were thinking about visual content as the most convincing, you know, AI generated video of people saying and doing things they've never done. Anyone can be cloned now, whether it's your voice or your face, but hadn't really considered or put text on an equal footing. Mm. But of course, that makes so much sense. You know, we're, we're storytellers. We, that's something that goes back to the earliest days of civilization. And the problem, I suppose, is that there's been a lot of thinking on kind of the visual components of AI-generated content and what we can do to kind of combat the worst risks. And I'll come back to that. But less on text. And if you think about the solutions on kind of the disinformation piece around that really started thinking around was the thinking started with deep fakes. Initially, people started thinking, okay, what we need to do is we need to detect it, right? We need to be able to build an AI content detector that can detect everything that's made by AI. So then we can definitively say, okay, that's AI generated and that's not, that's synthetic, that's authentic. Turns out that in practice, Building detection is really, really difficult because first, there's no one size fits all detector. 
there are now hundreds of thousands of generative models out there, and there's never going to be one-size-fits-all detector that can detect all synthetic content. Second, it can only give you a percentage of how likely it thinks that is generated by AI or not. So, mm. okay, I'm 90% confident. I'm 70% confident. So always has a chance for a false negative, false positive or false negative. And third, as you correctly point out, and this is kind of was one of the points I made in my book and actually over the past few years has become something I've been speaking about a lot, is that if you believe, as I do, and as you already pointed out, that there will be some element of AI creation going forward in all digital information, then it becomes a futile exercise to try and detect mm -hmm. what's synthetic because everything is going to have some degree of AI or a synthetic nature within it, any piece of digital content. So the second approach, kind of tech-led approach that's been emerging over the past few years, which is more promising, is the idea of content provenance, right? So that, and this is applicable to both synthetic or AI-generated content, as well as authentic content. It's about full transparency. So mm -hmm. rather than being in the business of adjudicating what's true, you know, this is real, this is not. It's about securing full transparency about the origins of content in kind of almost the DNA of that content. So whether if it's authentic, you can capture it using secure capture technology, and that will give you almost kind of a cryptographically sealed data about that piece of content, where it was created, who it belongs to. But the same principle should also be applied to AI-generated content. And of course, not everyone's going to do that. But the difference here is that if you are a good actor, right? So if you are a open AI or you're a stable diffusion or, you know, you're, you're Coca-Cola and you want to use AI-generated collateral in your latest marketing campaign, mm. then you should mark your content so everyone can see that this is actually synthetic. So the technology to do that already exists. And I should point out that it's much more than a watermark. Because people are like, yeah, okay, it's a watermark. Watermarks can be edited or removed. But this kind of authentication technology, like I said, it's about cryptographically sealing it almost into the DNA of that content. So it can never be removed. It's indelible. It's you know there for kind of the world to see. But the second part to this, and this is really where it starts getting tricky, is that it's no good signing your content in this way with, in full transparency if you're a good actor. If nobody can see that kind of nutritional label, right? Mm -hmm. So you've signed it, you put the technology in there, but like, if I view it on Twitter, am I going to see it? Or if I see it on YouTube, will I see it? So the second point is that we actually need to build into the architecture of the internet, the actual infrastructure for this to kind of become the default, right? The content credentials. And there's a nonprofit organization called the C2PA, which is already building this open standard for the internet. And um, a lot of interesting founding members, uh, Microsoft, Intel, BBC, Arm. And I guess we will see if this kind of becomes mm. a standard because my view, so the, the, the projection, the estimate that I make is that 90% of online content is going to be generated by AI by 2025. <laughs> that, hmm. that's a punchy kind of figure but i really believe that this is probably the last moment of the internet where the majority of the information and data 
you see online doesn't have some degree of AI in its creation. Mm. So this issue of authentication rather than detecting fakes, uh, it's an interesting flip of the of the approach and it's it, it presents a kind of bottleneck I'm, I'm wondering does this suggest that this will be a, an age of of new gatekeepers where i mean the promise at, at the moment for those who are, who are very bullish on on everything that's happening is that this has democratized creativity and and information creation just to the the ultimate degree but if we all get trained very quickly to care about the integrity of information and our approach to finding legitimate information, whatever its its provenance, whether it's been synthesized in some way or whether it's, it purports to be actually human generated. If the approach to safeguarding the integrity is authentication rather than the detection of misinformation, how do we not wind up in a world where you, know, you can't trust an image unless it came from Getty Images, say, or, or it was taken on an iPhone, right? Like the cryptographic authentication of information, is this something that you imagine is going to be lead to a new siloing and gatekeeping, or is it going to be like you know, blockchain-mediated and you know, everyone will be on this, you know, all fours together dealing with content, however you know, they, the people will be able to create it you know, outside of some walled garden or inside of, you know, a major corporation and everyone will have access to the same authentication tools. Yeah, I guess the first thing to say is um, even when it comes to the authentication approach, there's no silver bullet, right? Because the, the scale of the problem is so vast. And in part, because over the past 30 years, we've created this kind of digital information ecosystem wherein everybody and everything must now exist. It doesn't really matter if you're an individual, whether you're an organization or enterprise or a nation state. You you don't really have the choice not to be engaged and be doing things within this ecosystem. So the very possibility that the medium by which information and transactions and communications and interactions, so all digital kind of content and information could be compromised to the extent that it becomes untrustworthy, that's a huge problem, right? So trying to ensure that we build an ecosystem where we can actually trust the information or a part of an ecosystem, right? We can actually trust the information you engage with online is going to be critical to society, to business, on on every kind of level conceivable. Detection will always play a role, by the way, I think. It's just that it's not, you know, it's not the only solution. Let me just take a a, a very narrow but salient case now. I would just imagine at some point today a video of Vladimir Putin claiming that he is about to use tactical nukes in the in the Mm. war in Ukraine emerges Mm -hmm. online and you know, the New York Times is trying to figure out whether or not to write a story on it, react to it, spread it. Clearly, there's a detection problem there, right? It's like it's, yeah. we, ha- we have this one video yeah. that's spreading on social media, and to humanize, it appears totally authentic, right? I, I, th- I, think yeah. it's, I think it's uncontroversial to say that if we're not there now, we will be there very soon, and probably in the matter of months, not years. Where, oh, we're there. <laughs> where, yeah, we, we'll have video of, of Putin or anyone else where 
it will literally be impossible for a person to detect some anomaly where, where which which is a an obvious tell to it being fake. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I mean, we're we're already there. So to very sophisticated synthetic media or you know deepfakes has now come to kind of mean. AI generated content in which somebody's biometrics are synthesized, right? Mm. So it's 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 a it's a visual representation of a person saying and doing things they didn't do or a completely synthetic person. They're already so sophisticated that we can't tell. And whilst we're talking about kind of the nuclear political scenario, it's already cropping up really malicious use cases and kind of the vishing has become a big deal. So this is kind of phishing using people's biometrically cloned voice, you know, so mm. the age-old scam of your loved one calling you because they've had an accident or they're in jail and they need to be bailed out. Now, imagine you get that call and it's actually your son's voice you hear or your wife's voice or your father's voice. Are you going to send the money? Hell yeah, you're going to send the money because you believe your loved one is in trouble. And you can already synthesize voices with up to three seconds of audio. When I started looking at this field back in 2017, you need hours and hours and hours of training data to try and synthesize a single voice. So you could only do people who are really in the public eye, uh, like you, Sam. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, oh, oh, your your entire podcast repertoire would you know have been a good basis for training data. But you don't need to be Sam Harris, and uh, you know, to to do this, you just need three seconds, which you could probably scrape of Instagram, of YouTube, of LinkedIn. So you're already seeing that, right? One question here, Nina, are we, with respect to video, are we truly there? Because the best thing I've seen, and I think this is, you know, most people will have seen this, are these Tom Cruise videos, which are, oh, yeah. you know, are fake, but they're, they're somewhat gamed because if I understand correctly, the person who's creating them already looks a lot like Tom Cruise and he's he's, he's almost like a yeah. Tom Cruise impersonator and he's mapping you know the the synthetic face of Cruise onto his own facial acting and it's so it's it's very compelling it, it it never looks truly perfect to me but it's if you weren't tipped off that you should be paying close attention you you would probably pass for almost everyone but is it are we are we to the point now where absent some uh, you know, you know, biasing scheme like that, where you have a, an actor at the bottom of it, you can, you can create video of anyone that is is undetectable as fake. Mm. It's a much more difficult challenge, and the the deep tom that started emerging went viral on TikTok in twenty twenty one. You're absolutely right, because that creator uh, was first of all he was doing a lot of VFX and AI. It's not that the AI was kind of autonomously creating it, and he was working with an actor who was a Tom mm. Cruise impersonator. Right. right. So he was just mapping it onto his face, which is why the fidelity looked highly convincing when it came out in 2021. Video is still a harder challenge, but already now there are consumer products on the market where you can send 20 seconds of you talking into your cell phone. And from that, they can create your own kind of personalized avatar. So the point is that whilst it's still the barriers to entry on synthetic video generation are still higher. Uh, they're coming down very quickly. And like I said, there's the kind of market for your AI avatar is already thriving. And that requires about 20 seconds of video. And, and the, where do the, the visual foundational models fit in here, like Dolly and, and Midjourney and Stable Diffusion? Are they the source of good deep fakes now, or are they not producing that sort of thing? 
Yeah, so some it, it's been a really interesting shift because when deep fakes first started coming out in 2017, right? It was more that this was now a kind of tool that enthusiasts, ML and AI enthusiasts, perhaps those with a background in VFX could use to create content. And they started doing it to basically clone people, right? But there was no kind of model or foundational model in order to be able to do this. Then pretty soon, I think it was in, yeah, in 2018, NVIDIA released this model called StyleGAN, and that could generate endless images of human faces. So it had been trained on a vast data set of human faces. So every time you kind of, you might have gone to that website a few years ago called thispersondoesnotexist.com. Yeah, and it yeah. Was, yeah, it was astonishing, right? Because every time you refreshed the page, you'd be given what looked like an entirely convincing photograph of somebody who was entirely synthetic and AI generated. Although but, I remember the tell there was that the, they could never quite get the teeth right. The teeth always the looked teeth, somewhat the deformed. Ears, Exactly. Yeah. There were there was these giveaway telltale signs, right? So when you saw the best in class kind of productions or creations like Deep Tom in 2021, uh, there was a high level of post production and VFX and a bit of AI. So you know this wasn't still democratized to the extent where anybody could do it. But what you've been seeing over the past 12 months is the emergence of these so-called foundational models. Now these are interesting because they are not task-specific, their general purpose. And they are trained on these vast, vast data sets. You can almost conceive of it as the entirety of the internet. So the ones you just mentioned, Dolly 2, Stable Diffusion, Midjourney, they're all text-to-image generators, right? And they're, they're so compelling because the user experience is phenomenal because mm-hmm. they have NLP tied into them so that when we use them, how do we get them to create something? Well, we prompt them. We just type what they want, what we want them to create. So now all of a sudden, you have these foundational models that can generate images of anybody or anything. So yeah, you know, the, the really sophisticated deep fakes you've been seeing doing the rounds on the internet recently, whether it was Donald Trump's um, kind of just before his arraignment, you know, oh, Donald yeah. Trump. Yeah, fighting off the cops. Did you see those ones? Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Those were created by Midjourney V5 or the ones of the Pope in the Balenciaga jacket. So there's been an incredible amping up of the capability, shall we say, because before it was quite piecemeal and you'd have to do this and that, but like there was no foundational model where you could just type in what you wanted it to create and boom, it would come out. Now, does that exist for video yet? Not yet. Is it going to come? Invariably. And that's actually what ChatGPT is as well, right? It's a one manifestation of a foundational model for text. And that's mm. one of the reasons why it has just been so compelling. It's that user experience. Hey, I can just have a conversation with it. I can just type in there and then it can like create anything I ask it to. And it's the same concept for the foundational models for image generation and video generation is next. Yeah, I recently watched, rewatched the film Her which I hadn't seen since it came out <laughs> 10 years ago. And I must say it, it lands differently Prescient. now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> right. like, I, I, right. for, I forgot what I thought about it 10 years ago, but, it, you know, it's all too plausible now. And that's, it's already happening, Sam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, and, it, but, and the thing that's, I th- I, it's hard to get away from 
I mean, obviously, there there's some benefits to this sort of thing. I mean, if you could have a you know a functionally omniscient agent, you know, in your ear whenever you want. I mean, that's it's uh, many good things could come of that. But there is something. It's it, it's a vision of bespoke information where no one is seeing this or hearing the same thing anymore, right? So there's a siloing effect where if, if everyone has access to an oracle, well, then that oracle mm. can create a bespoke reality with or without hallucinations. I mean, your, your, your preferences can be catered to in such a way that, you know, everyone can be, I mean, to some degree, this has already happened, but it, it just, it, the concern gets sharpened up considerably when you think about the prospect of all of us having an independent conversation with a, a superintelligence that is not constrained to get everyone to converge or agree or to even find one another interpretable, right? It's like it's. Yeah. I, I already feel like when when I see, I, mean, I, I I'm I'm no longer on social media, so I, I have this experience less now. But when I was still on Twitter, I had the experience of seeing people I knew to some degree behave in ways that were less and less interpretable to me. I mean, they they, they were seeming more and more irrational, and I realized well. I'm not seeing. I'm not looking over their shoulder, seeing their Twitter feed. I don't, I don't see what they're the totality of what they're feeling, informed by, and reacting to. And I just see. I, I basically, from my bubble, I, they appear to be going crazy, and everyone is you know redshifted and quickly vanishing over some horizon from the place where I am currently sitting. And I and, and no doubt that I'm doing the same thing for them. And it is a it's an alarming picture of. A, a balkanization of our worldview, and it's um, yeah. I'm, I guess uh, the, the variable yeah. there really is the coming bespokeness of of information. Uh, and uh, yeah, you know, so, I mean, just uh, somebody. I think it was Jaron Lanier. I, might, I think it was Jaron Lanier. You know, flagged this for me some years ago, where he said, you know, just imagine if you went to Wikipedia and no one was actually seen. You know, you, you look at, look up an article on anything. You know, World War II. And that is curated purely for you, right? No one is seeing that same article. You know, your the Wikipedia, the Wikipedia, you know, ground truth as to the, the causes and and reality of World War II was written for you, catering and pandering to your preferences and biases, and uh, no one else has access to that specific article. So it seems that we're, we're potentially stumbling into that world with these tools. Oh, absolutely. This kind of hyper-personalization or the audience of one. And you already kind of see some of the early manifestations of that. So you, you're talking about her. So we have already, of course, after ChatGPT came out, uh, some of the kind of more nefarious things that started immediately being built, because it's going to get very weird when it comes to love, sex, and relationships, are these kind of girlfriend bots, right? For very lonely men, and these kind of chatbots can cater to their every sexual fantasy. There was actually a company called Replica, which also did these avatars, and they mm. people were using them as this kind of girlfriend, you know, being very inappropriate and using them for their their sexual fantasy. So they had to kind of change the settings, if you will, and reboot and kind of make sure that their avatar or didn't include the chatbot abilities that would kind of uh, relate to any kind of intimate relationships. But it's also true, of course, 
from the point you were making. By the way, well done on leaving Twitter. <laughs> There's nothing left mm. there, so okay. I, I'm sure I'm sure your life is a lot better for that. But if you think about radicalization and online radicalization, and this is actually something that I already read in a paper years ago because it was a piece of research done by the Middlesbrough Institute of Terrorism. And it was looking at how an early forebear to chat GPT, you know, to GPT-4, I think it was GPT-3, they had tested it and seen how it performed as a radicalization agent, mm. right? And we know so many people are radicalized online. Now, imagine, we're just talking right now about the capabilities of very sophisticated chatbots that are become, going to become even more sophisticated and be able to fulfill your every sexual fantasy or to be able to groom you, to, to radicalize you. And the next step when we talk about the capabilities of these generative models is so-called multimodal models, right? Mm -hmm. Because right now, they're still kind of broken up the foundational models into the type of content that they generate. So you have large language models, you have image generators, you have audio generators, uh, you have the kind of growing video generators, although they're obviously not as sophisticated as the text or image yet. But the multimodal is when you can work with all those digital medium in one. So hypothetically, you can, if we're going to go back to the kind of virtual girlfriend scenario, you know, you can not only chat to her, but you can see her, you can have photos generated of her. Similarly, if we go back to the grooming kind of scenario, you know, you're being shown video, you're being shown audio, whatever your worldview is, can be entrenched. So these are some of the darkest kind of manifestations of this hyper-personalization. Mm. On the kind of more benign side, I think people in the entertainment world are very excited about it because they're like, oh, this is the ability to create an audience of one. You know, So if you like the Harry Potter books and you want to find out more about Dumbledore, you can say, I want to have some more backstory generated for Dumbledore and I want to know about where he was born and uh, you know, what, what was his mother's backstory. And it could just hypothetically generate that for you in real time. But one area where this hyperpersonalization is really promising is in medicine. And interestingly, we talked about chatbots. And there have been some interesting trials on kind of using a chatbot as almost a assistant or a friend or a voice to people who are anxious or depressed. And the early kind of indicators have been that it can be helpful. Now, I don't know, I guess it's a philosophical point, whether you think you should treat people with mental health issues with a chatbot, you know, whether that is the benefits outweigh the risks, that's not for me to decide. But in terms of like the hyper-personalization of potential medical treatment for people based on their own data, mm -hmm. that's something that I am really interested in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we want you add, you know, full genome sequencing to that. Exactly. And it's, it's, it gets very interesting. On the multimodal model front, yeah. do, you, do you have a mm -hmm. sense of how far away we are from the all-encompassing tool where, you know, you could sit down and say, give me a 45-minute documentary proving that the Holocaust didn't happen. Uh, using all kinds of archival footage of uh, Hitler and everyone else and make it uh, in the style of a, a Ken Burns documentary. Yeah. And with that prompt, it'll spit out a, a totally compelling 45-minute video with um, essentially 
perfect fake sourcing of of archival imagery and all the rest? So I think to have like a 40-minute completely synthetically generated video, we're still a way off that. But having said that, you know, I've been kind of working a lot with the research community and some of the founders of the most influential companies in the space. And they're pretty, you know, they say multimodal is coming this year. Does that mean that it's going to be good enough to generate what you just articulated there? Probably not. But when we look back at this point, just like when we look back at GPT-4, it's going to look very rudimentary, very basic, because the trajectory is that these models are going to get better and better and better. And again, I think that the ability to combine different forms of media is inevitable. So that scenario is in the realm of the possible. It may be in the next three years, maybe even sooner. I mean, today I was just, I was on Spotify because I, I wanted to find a podcast it was because I wanted to listen to something that Sam Altman had said. And I, so I just searched for Sam Altman and um, I stumbled across an entire podcast series of Joe Rogan mm-hmm. interviewing people, like people he'd never had conversations with. And there was this one that he had with, Sam. it was clearly labeled that it was right. synthetic, yeah. but I just started listening to the one that he had with um, Sam Altman. And so to be able to have, so this obviously the audio is all generated and you can see a world where that video is generated, you know, maybe in the next 18 months. Of, of course, a documentary is a bit more maybe complicated if you're like digging archival footage and make these the main arguments. But if it's just a video being generated to an audio track, perhaps an easier challenge. Although in, in some ways, the archival resources lower the bar because you, you, you can imagine yes. what would be entailed it, yeah. and you just you just clip mm-hmm. you know f- footage of hitler speaking and all you have to do is yeah. change the audio and and perhaps uh you know change the the mouth the subtle mouth movements and it's um you know it's messy old footage anyway and so it's it, people are not going to be attending to it in the same way it's um it is interesting i i, I find that i have a very different reaction to the generation of, of synthetic art versus what purports to be synthetic nonfiction. So for instance, somebody at some point sent me a, an AI-generated conversation between Alan Watts and Terrence McKenna, two people who mm-hmm. I, I don't believe ever met, you know, both of whom I'm a fan of. And I really, I'm a Watts fan too. Yeah. <laughs> your your um, your work uh, with Watts on your app was amazing. Really oh yeah, 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 yeah. We have his archive; yeah. it's great. Yeah. But um, so yeah, it, both were you know famously great speakers, and and it would it would be fascinating to have heard a conversation between them. But I realized I, I had no interest in listening to an AI generated version of that conversation. However good it might be it's just like it because it, it yeah it, it doesn't scratch the itch a real conversation would have scratched for me which is to have heard what these two guys would have really said to one another right so it's, it's like if you tell me i guess I mean, a more um, typical case would be you know if i if you ask chat gpt you know what were the causes of world war ii it gives you a totally serviceable list of bullet points either that you know should would get you an A in any, you know, exam in a history class. 
as to the, the causes of the war. Uh, and that, that seems like a perfectly useful application of the technology. But if, you, if you're going to say, give me an essay written by Winston Churchill about the causes of World War II, I mean, stylistically, I, it might be nice to see that text, but I simply don't care about it as a simulacrum of what the real Churchill would have thought. Right? Mm. Like, like, it just doesn't, because the knowledge that it's fake completely destroys the integrity of the project for me. And again, and it, doesn't, it really doesn't matter if it's undetectable. It, really, it doesn't matter if it would fool a Churchill scholar. I still feel like I'm not interested in that thing. And I, I noticed another double standard for me with, um, with respect to artwork. Like, I, like you know, I actually love the, the, the visual images I've seen produced by, by the, these, these foundational models like, like Midjourney. Um, and, you know, when I hear that one has, you know, won a, a, an art prize and an you know, art contest, I think that's kind of funny. But then if you tell me, what about a novel written by AI? Are you, are you going to want to read that novel? Probably not. And I, I'm not quite sure <laughs> what the, the basis of that double standard is. Like, I, I just suddenly lose interest in the product of non-human origin that I, I most associate with a real conversation with a real person. You know, insofar as a novel simulates the, a conversation with a, a real person, I care about its origin. When a painting, uh, on some level, I'm happy for a painting just to look good, yeah, and uh, and to simulate you know the, a, a vision of, of something that I hadn't yet seen before. So I don't know if you if you have any similar biases or, or different ones there. Well, I think that makes complete sense given you know you're kind of a philosopher, you're a connector of millions of people. You have you know meaningful conversations. It's it absolutely makes sense that you you you're not interested in having a conversation with AI or somehow a novel is like denigrated in its value, also being an author. But I think the interesting thing is that what, how would you conceive of it? So if it's not just autonomously AI creating it, right? This isn't just an AI that's been prompted to write a book. Because some of the most interesting and less so on the written side, but some of the most interesting artwork I've seen coming out of these communities around Midjourney, Stable Diffusion. I would say Midjourney is probably the, the most interesting community, artistic community. It's incredibly difficult to do what they're doing because mm. you need to have, you can, no, not everybody can create what they can create with their prompts and their background and their knowledge. So for instance, if you are a creative director or you have a background in photography and you understand what the right terms are to get the outcome that you want in terms of the visual art or AI generated art that you create, it's quite tricky, which is why there's now so many resources online to kind of the art of prompting. Mm. So if one thinks that somehow it's not valuable because, you know, it's just AI autonomously creating it, I would say, certainly in the case of the art, it's, it's much more a dialectic process where not everybody can create good AI-generated art. It's, it's quite difficult to do. And I guess that, that may also happen in, in written works. Uh, have you tried to use ChatGPT to write? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I, I've been underwhelmed by the results, but I, again, I haven't spent a lot of time becoming a better prompt engineer. Prompter. 
Yeah. yeah. Although you you know so, now I think you can also use these LLMs to prompt themselves, right? You can ask ChatGPT what what would be the best prompt for X and and have it ha- have it help you converge on something interesting. Yeah, uh, and I think I guess for me I had a similar kind of like underwhelming experience. But then I tried with a little bit of prompting and then feeding it some of my other writing. It's like, mm. can you describing what I thought my tone and my voice was? And then the outcome, you know, was, was a lot better. Does that kind of replace me? I don't think so. But do I use it as a tool? Yeah, because it can, it can help me put together something a lot quicker. So I don't think it's that the AI is just autonomously creating a work of art or a piece of writing by itself that makes it good. Sometimes where you do see some really interesting stuff emerging is in this kind of symbiotic relationship between human and machine. So one really, some cool examples that I can think of that I just encountered in the last few weeks. So I kind of chaired the first generative AI conference for enterprise here in London. And I was really struck by the emerging use cases across industries and on generative design. So Midjourney, that's just to kind of conceptualize how short the timeline is on this. Midjourney came out in June. So it's been about a year since Midjourney came out, June last year. Mm-hmm. And I was speaking to some incredible architects at Zaha Hadid Architects here in London. And they had been using Midjourney about, you know, since after a month after it came out. And the kind of conceptual design work they were doing was mind-blowing. And it was incredible and using it to be able to model in ways which it would have been incredibly difficult to do in the past and how it was helping their creative process by showing them ways to kind of think of these designs that they hadn't even thought of before and how it was allowing them actually to become multidisciplinary, right? So not only doing architecture, building design, but also using Midjourney now to embody their style and their creative craft in apparel wear, in apparel and in furniture. But Mm. the most interesting use case I saw was NASA engineers using it to design component parts of spaceships. And this was a process that would have taken decades before now being distilled down to hours and days. So obviously the, the engineers are super excited about it because otherwise this would have been like three lifetimes of work. But now this was something that, you know, like I said, they could do in hours and days. Yeah. That was compelling. The productivity gains are are astounding when you look at these specific cases. I mean I think it was deep mind in, in their alpha fold results where they basically solve the protein folding problem for yeah. hundreds of millions of, of molecules. Uh, it, was, it was something like, I forget the, the equivalent in human years, but it was something just absolutely ridiculous, like 200 million years <laughs> of, of you know, graduate student time uh, that was yeah. you know, accomplished over the course of a weekend. Yeah. And it's just, uh, maybe we, at this point, we could pivot, unless you have more of the, more of the doom uh, you want to express if we could pivot to to the prospect of success here. I mean that that, that you know we we solve some of the most odious problems of malicious use or or you know just the the negative externalities of you know unintended consequences, and we notice creative gains and and scientific insights and just general abundance 
that would mm. be unthinkable without these tools. What what do you see as the the possible the the, the, mo- the most compelling vision of a bright future here? <laughs> the upside. Uh, so I know you're a very experienced and skilled Buddhist practitioner. So I think ultimately it's going to be a little bit of yin and yang. Mm. You know, I. I I, I don't think it's necessarily all doom and gloom, although I definitely believe that there are short-term risks and potentially existential risks as well. But having kind of worked on that, which is what the reason why I initially came to this, right? I kind of worked on the risks and disinformation, misinformation, but for the past few years, kind of working more with the research community and the startup community, my view has become far more nuanced. And ultimately, this is to me, why this is not a story only about technology. This is a story about humanity, because not only is this technology exponential to the point where I think it's going to change the frameworks of society, but I actually think that we have agency too. And this is a little bit my beef with the whole AGI narrative, the existential Mm. risk narrative, because it has become the narrative that the media just love, right? They absolutely love it. You can't open a newspaper, you can't turn on the TV, you can't listen to a radio interview without the narrative being like AI is going to kill us. So it's kind of almost creating a little bit of a moral panic. And with regards to some of the people, some of the luminaries, and I, and I know um, you also recently signed a letter and I, I know why you did it and I absolutely commend you for doing so. But when people like Elon Musk sign an AI moratorium letter, mm. And then turn around and simultaneously buy up as many GPUs as they can get their hands on and say, you know, it's harder to get than drugs and then launch their own version of ChatGPT called TruthGPT. The optics on that, like from a public perspective, look kind of bad, right? Well, the the optics on much of what Elon (laughs) is doing at the moment are questionable. (laughs) Exactly. So whilst we have to focus on the AGI scenario and the existential risk scenario. But we also have to be very clear-eyed about the existing risks and the the medium and short-term risks that can materialize before we even get to kind of superintelligence. We absolutely also need to delve into the other side of this. So we already talked about some of the incredible capabilities for generative design in areas as diverse as architecture to kind of, you know, uh, spaceship design to what this means for the potential future of knowledge generation feels like medicine. But perhaps the most profound change I think we're going to see in the shortest period of time is the sheer economic abundance, right? So talking about the productivity gains, right now already, so many organizations and companies are trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I integrate a version of ChatGPT into my organization to expedite my the processes? And there was a research that came out from McKinsey last week, which kind of quantified the productivity gains in 63, just 63 use cases. And the projection was that it could add annual value, annual value of 2.2 to 4.4 trillion dollars in 63 productivity use cases. So I have no doubt that a lot of money is going to be made and that there's going to be a lot of economic abundance created. The bigger question then is, how are those resources going to be distributed in society? You know, are we heading towards a world where these tremendously powerful systems, which 
can almost superpower all human intelligent and creative work and will have so many enterprise applications. Are they going to be monopolized by a few big tech companies? Or will they, and, and, and again, this is, I guess, where the debate around safety and democratization also becomes really interesting and perhaps sometimes a little bit sticky because the open source community, because it isn't only the big tech monoliths who are developing generative AI. It was the case at first because they're so incredibly expensive to build these foundational models, right? On all of the kind of best minds in AI. They don't work in academia anymore. They're working at these huge kind of private companies. And the amount of compute you need, the amount of data you need, the reason that OpenAI was able to do so well is because it had raised, you know, a billion dollars in its founding endowment. And, you know, similarly with Google and where else do you see these huge foundational models come from? But in the last few months, you've also started to see a lot of stuff happening in the open source community. And that's fundamentally to do with this shift, this understanding that bigger isn't always better. Once you have these foundational models at the base, you try to optimize models for specific outcomes or use cases. So in the case of enterprise, it might be like, okay, how do I get it to do all my SEO or to handle all my customer queries or to kind of generate all the product descriptions for, for my, my catalog of products or try to sell online? You don't need a huge foundational model. So the open source community is not that, if, if it isn't only the huge models that they need, they can build them the smaller models and they can iterate quicker. And just the wealth of feedback and innovation, which is why kind of Sam Altman has said as well, that they've kind of opened GPT-4 for testing, right? They want that kind of reinforcement from the open source community. So for me, I think that this is probably going to be a technology that is not only exponentially accelerating, I think the adoption is going to be faster than anything we've seen before. And we already see that in one example of ChatGPT, right? It, was, it reached a million users in five days. And within two months, it reached 100 million users. Within 60 days, that makes it the most popular application of all time. The next closest thing was TikTok, mm. and that took 10 months. And that's only one implementation of one type of generative model. But the kind of generative AI revolution is pretty, I would say, is now really underway. So I think almost that it will be more profound than any of the other digital revolutions that have come before it mm. because of the impact that it has on human knowledge work. Well, how does this not become an engine of inequality, right? Because when you think, exactly. think about hiring people for knowledge work, I think yeah. the first question that most uh, job creators are, are probably asking them, themselves at the moment is, do we need more people or can this be accomplished with AI? It may be premature to assume it can be accomplished with AI, but at some point it won't be. At some point it, it will obviously be the kind of thing that AI can do not just as well, but better than a person in, the, in that class of job. And then the, how does that class of job not just ev evaporate in a way that is truly zero sum? I mean, the, the, what people tend to do at this point in the conversation is they, they analogize to previous moments of yeah. technological development. They say, well, yeah, it, you know, it used to be that, uh, I forget what it was, 50% you know, of Americans were farmers and and yeah. you know, then 
then it's now less than 2%, but you know, all those people found other things to do. I, I think we're, th- this stands a chance of being the class of technological breakthrough that does nullify more jobs than it creates, right? Like it's not that everyone who was doing, you know, who was an accountant will suddenly find, you know, once a, the, the whole framework of accounting gets swallowed by AI without remainder, it may not be straightforward to say, okay, well, you know, all you accountants now need to learn X. Yeah. The path to X may not, may no longer be obvious in the way that previous changes in, in the economic landscape afforded an obvious path forward. I, I, yeah, I, I think this is why sometimes when the debate is only kind of on the AGI scenario, you know, there are very real disruptive trends going to be happening long before we reach AGI. And I think the disruption to the labor market is one of the most important. There was a study I came across, is is actually from Goldman Sachs, and they said, okay, 300 million jobs are going to be automated or lost due to generative AI. This was a study that came out in March. But there's absolutely no doubt this is going to disrupt the world of work in a more profound way than we ever thought was imaginable. Because we've always considered, you know, human creative and intelligent output as kind of being the last bastion that, you know, technology can replace us in. But now we're seeing that, okay, at this point, it's still being pitched as this is your co-pilot. This is going to 10x you. This is going to augment you. But we've already discussed that we're at such an early stage of this nascent technology's development. And already we know that if you are talking about insight generation or analysis, you know, just throwing a bunch of data and information into a large language model, it's going to be able to analyze that and pull out things much quicker than a human ever could, right? And you see this impacting white-collar jobs in law. That's one of the most fascinating things that's being disrupted right now. How long do you have to study to be a lawyer? You know, you think this is very technical, very high-profile job. And yet now I've already spoken to the founders of a bunch of generative AI companies who are basically automating constituent parts of that job. So one company, which is just drafting contacts, you, yeah, you need some, you still need lawyers. Yeah. You need them to check that the contracts are fine, that, you know, you still need them to talk to the clients, but do you need that phalanx of junior lawyers and junior Mm. associates to do all the drafting for you? No, you don't need it because you have an AI system that can do it better. That's trained on all the wealth of information that a single kind of junior or even a team of juniors or even that a thousand juniors wouldn't have, and it's cheaper. So then how does one, you just have to even reconceive education and training, because let's say you cut out that kind of junior layer of lawyers. How do you become the senior lawyer who's the one managing the relationships with the partners? And not only that, but access is going to be huge. Because it's all well and good for us perhaps here in the West to be like, okay, we're going to lean into it and we're going to reskill and upskill, even though we know it's going to be really disruptive here in the West as well. But what about the rest of the world? What if they don't have access to these tools? How can you compete? You can't. Yeah. I mean, even if we stayed stuck at the stage of just an efficient co-pilot, right, which which seems unlikely for many tasks, but even if we just stayed here, it's... 
the the disruptive power of the technology is captured in the in the very phrase you used. You know, this is going to 10x you. Well, if if this is going to 10x, you know, every one of my employees, I don't need to hire anyone else, right? Exactly. The truth is, 10x is even more than we need, right? Even if it's just going to 3x everyone, well, then then we're done hiring, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's it's uh, you know, and you, and you just roll that logic out across all of these uh, industries, and it's um, it's interesting to consider where you know where the jobs go. I mean, it really it is an article of faith that whatever di- whatever the shape of the disruption you know, over here, it will create new jobs and new opportunities over there in as yet unimagined industries and disciplines. And it just I, I, it seems like this is the the one technology that falsifies all the ready analogies to previous technologies, because this is the one technology that is, it is replacing human intelligence. Exactly. You know, it's like, it, it, we, and, we, and you, yeah. yeah, you, you've been, you've been thinking about this, you know, throughout your entire career. Did you think that we would be at the point we're at now? Or how do you, how do you feel about the rapid development of basically human, Human levels of intelligence. So putting aside the debate about, okay, is it actually intelligent? Is it conscious? Can it understand for just a second? The output is the equivalent or better than something that a human created, right? Yeah. No, I, I think it's, uh, I mean, I, I never really had a timeline in my mind when I began thinking about these things. I, I didn't really start thinking about AI and its implications until around 2015, I, there was a this conference in Puerto Rico that I went to that kind of solidified my interest in the topic. And my interest has always been more focused on the ultimate implications of it and, and therefore the, right. the alignment problem with respect to AGI. But my concerns about information integrity and, and you know, the, the political fragmentation of our society in recent years has sharpened up my worries about narrow AI. So I, I, I've been you know, I, I've focused on both sides of the problem, but there's not much one needs to assume to realize that we're headed for something that's fundamentally discontinuous with every other breakthrough and cultural change we've we've experienced. That's yeah. right. So it's it's just, and all you have to assume, really, there's just two assumptions. One is that that intelligence is substrate independent, which is to say, there's no there's nothing magical about biological intelligence and what what, what we call intelligence can be ultimately instantiated in silico without remainder, right? So, and and it's, it's just so clear that that is the case already. I mean, it's just there, there is no principle. I've, I've yet to encounter a, a not just principle, the even intelligible argument that biology is somehow uniquely potent mm. with respect to information processing. So you assume substrate independence. Therefore, if we continue to make progress, we will eventually have machines that are more intelligent than we are in every sense of the word. And the only other assumption you need to make is that we will continue making that progress, right? And, and, oh, yeah. And we, we will unless something happens that is so terrible that it prevents us from continuing to make that progress. I mean, given the, the, the other reason why the analogy, many of the other analogies people draw here are misleading is that, you know, unlike in the case of you know, nuclear weapons or in nuclear technology generally, intelligence 
is such an intrinsic good, right? It's so important. It's so valuable. Every and every increment of it is so valuable that the incentives are, are such that we're going to create it. You know, it's just, there's just no way we're going to be stopped by, you know, however we regulate, however, you know, whatever treaties we sign, the, the people will cheat uh, on these treaties. And I mean, it's just, it's an arms race and a gold rush that we can't possibly avoid. Whereas with, you know, n- nuclear technology or even, you know, d- DNA synthesis, the downsides are so obvious and the upsides are so tenuous. Right. right. I mean, not to say that they don't exist, but they're, they're not, every increment isn't valuable, right? It's like fusion, fusion is, is hard enough and far enough away and expensive enough and uh, that, you know, we, we've, we've experienced 70 years where we have not been able to monetize it. You know, we just have the destructive version of it, but we haven't been able to create it as an energy source. But here it's just, you know, someone in their garage can be tinkering with AI now. And, and, and the, the thing I didn't foresee, and I, I don't know that anyone quite did, is that I didn't foresee that our most competent AIs would be accessible to millions of people from the outset, right? I, what I thought we would get right. is a story leaking out of a lab at Google or somewhere else saying that, okay, we've got AI now that is disconcertingly powerful. And now we're trying to figure out how to let it interact with the internet, uh, and we're that's trying to figure really, out what to do with it. But we've blown way past that. I mean, we, this, all yeah. this stuff is already in the wild. Yeah, that's a really good and interesting point. And um, there is, I guess, a little bit of a backstory to that because when these foundational models, when they started, kind of they, <laughs> Google, OpenAI, those who had kind of resources to huge swathes of data and computing ability started building these foundational models. There was actually an early period uh, when everything was kept behind closed doors because it was just too scary. And how could people misuse it? You know, that's why the early GPT series was never uh, developed for kind of mass use. Uh, that's why the earlier version of Dolly, when it came out, Dolly 1, and even Dolly 2 was like strictly behind guardrails. That's why, you know, Google were not the ones to pioneer a chat GPT-like product because it was all, it was too risky. And the balance really shifted last summer. And the two things that happened that changed the game, in my view, are mid-journey, Right, which was mm-hmm. a model that was created for, for an image generation model, a foundational model, which was now released for anybody to use. That was kind of the first foundational model that was put out there, and it kind of broke the internet, so to speak. If you looked at the Discord channel for Midjourney last summer, it was more than like NVIDIA and Xbox. It, it was crazy. There were millions of people in there within a matter of days or weeks. And then the second thing that happened is the open source release of Stable Diffusion. So this is another text-to-image generation foundational model. Actually, a lot of the work on Stable Diffusion came from the open source and research community. But this British company called Stability AI kind of became the face and fronted it and then released it, having seen the success of Midjourney in the wild for anybody to use. And that was the next thing that kind of broke the internet. And all of a sudden, right, after the success of Stable Diffusion, Stability AI, to much fanfare, launched, did its kind of 
initial seed round in San Francisco in, they released Stable Diffusion in August in San Francisco. They kind of did their big launch party, raised their seed round for $100 million and were immediately minted as a unicorn. Hmm. And I think that's when everything started to change because people were like, oh, actually, now this is out there. There's money to be made and millions of people want to use this and play with this. And ChatGPT, by its very design, is made for millions of people to interact with, right? So something shifted, something changed in OpenAI all those years. I mean, the initial founding mission, obviously, being to kind of protect humanity from AGI mm. to doing these incredibly fascinating research and building these foundational models to November last year, where they're like, hey, we're going to now release this into the wild, right? We're going to we, they were a foundation uh, no, no. <laughs> first. I mean, they, then, then they became a for-profit company, but they were at first yeah. they were a nonprofit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, you know, I mean, they're, in, in to hear Sam Altman talk about it, they're an unusual for-profit company because they cap their profits at a certain point, and then the the excess profit would go to the nonprofit. But I believe that cap is at one hundred x profits, right? So it's. Uh, it's a fairly generous cap, you know. If they, if they, <laughs> one, one, they, right. they feel that a hundred x is is rich enough in terms yeah. of profit. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened to you know for this to be in front of all? I made a prediction at the end of the last of last year, and I said hundreds of millions, are going, hundreds of millions of people are going to be interfacing with generative AI in 2023. This is going to be the year of mass adoption. And some people were like, "Oh, okay, yeah, whatever." We'll see. This is just like the metaverse. This is the latest hype thing. And by next year, it'll be dead. Mm. Now, that prediction came through through ChatGPT alone within 60 days. And what changed? Well, people started to sense the money, right? People started to sense that this is going to be have tremendous enterprise utility. Microsoft, as soon as ChatGPT came out, they put an additional $10 billion into OpenAI. And every single big tech company, first it was Microsoft, then it was Google, that it was Amazon's AWS teaming up with um, an open source community to provide compute and models. Meta has been building foundational models and releasing them open source in the belief that if they release them open source and integrate it into the actual kind of infrastructure of the ecosystem, then their models will be better, more powerful, more influential. So everything changed because of these two first models that were put out, you know, for, for the public to use, and then ChatGP just accelerated it mm. to a whole nother level. Well, we certainly are living <laughs> in interesting times, Nina. There's no, uh, that's, one, that's indisputable. Oh, yeah. Are there any other topics that you wanted to touch here? Because I think this was a, this covered everything that was in my head to talk about. No, it's great. It's yeah. great, Sam. Yeah. Nice. Thank you so much for having me. Well, yeah. Thank How you. do you, do you feel positive, optimistic? negative I, i'm rarely your... accused of being an optimist so it's uh but <laughs> I, I am i'm happy i'm i'm a i'm a happy pessimist i think that's where i where i <laughs> i net out here but i'm worried but i'm also entertained and uh I don't, I don't know if that's a good combination or or just a frank pathology but um it's always great to speak with you about these topics and um i'm sure we will not need to wait three more years to uh justify another podcast because things are changing, as you pointed out, very, very quickly. So the moment there's something worth talking about, feel free to get in touch. 
Oh, it's an it's an honor it's for me. You're you know you've always been somebody I've just so looked up to as a thought leader and um, you know just an incredible person with all the work you do uh, with the app and the meditation practice and thank you. You know, I it's it's just such an honor for me. Nice. Well, to be continued. <laughs> Great. Enjoy the rest of your days. Yeah. Take care.